I suppose you're wondering why I called this meeting. As you all know by now, we had an excellent dessert for dinner tonight. Ice cream and frozen strawberries. Well, about an hour ago, I, I sent Whitaker to the pantry to bring me another portion. He came back with the ice cream, all right. But he said, sir, there ain't no more strawberries. Now, gentlemen, I do not believe that the officers of this ship consumed a full gallon of strawberries at dinner tonight, and I intend to prove it. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the second, it is the second, right? Yes. Of the 1954 nominees, The Kane Mutiny, starring Humphrey Bogart, Fred McMurray, and... Jose Ferrer, despite the fact that he's not in it for that long, yeah, it I really was... is starring Jose Ferrer. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely Jose Ferrer and Humphrey Bogart are acting, and then a lot of other people are in the movie. I would say Fred McMurray is also acting. Yeah, Fred McMurray is fine. Fred McMurray is at least way better than our ostensible lead, who shouldn't even be in this fucking movie. And it's completely unnecessary. Just completely unnecessary to the actual story of the quote-unquote Cain mutiny, which they take great pains to tell you at the beginning of the film, is not a real mutiny. Yeah. (laughs) No one has ever staged a mutiny in the U.S. Navy. We want to make it very, very clear. (laughs) And in a way, that fucking, like, warning and, and dedication to our brave boys in the Navy is like everything wrong with this movie, right? Like, and and I want to be clear, there's a lot right with this movie. I like a lot about this movie, but it is kind of a mess, and it's kind of a mess because it simultaneously wants to be this really interesting psychological portrait of like, what do you do when someone you have put your trust in for literally your life and death isn't trustworthy, shouldn't be trusted? And go, also, that's never a problem in the U.S. Navy because the U.S. Navy fucking rules. And (laughs) it's like, you can't do both. Right. Like, is this based on something that actually happened? I mean, it's based on a novel. Yeah. But the idea that they would have this setting and then tell you like, oh, but this could never actually happen from Jump is kind of weird. This is a really compelling film. That is so fucking uneven. I'm going to have a very hard time rating it. And it's very compelling because Humphrey Bogart is fabulous. I actually do like Fred McMurray and I'll make a case for that. By the end of it, I don't love his character, but I think that he's doing a good job before that. And then Jose Ferrer are just elevating kind of a mess of a script and the weirdest music choices I have ever heard in a film They're so incongruous with the tone of every scene. (laughs) I think before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of like Fred McMurray's performance, which I think is a good performance hamstrung by this film in a way that Humphrey Bogart and Jose Ferrer managed to kind of get escape velocity out of the, like, gravity of how weird and confusing this movie can be. Yeah, I mean, they are better actors than Fred McMurray. No question. (laughs) But Fred McMurray is also next to Robert Francis, who 
I hate to speak ill of somebody who dies the next year at a very young age, but is an absolute dog shit actor who is only on film because he looks like he walked out of central casting for all American quarterback. Right. God, it's not even spine. It's like second person grafted onto the spine of this movie is this plot line about just like generic handsome boy number 375 it joining the Navy and having to decide whether to have kind of an awkward conversation with his mother about how he's dating a nightclub singer. And then he just is there for the actual plot of this movie. Yes. And the actual plot of this movie is after a first command, you spend way too much fucking time in. The cane, which is a minesweeper in World War II, gets a new captain whose name is Captain Quig, and Quig is played by Humphrey Bogart. And the moment he comes on screen, this movie is instantly two to three times better. Yes. Because Quig is a, as the movie diagnoses him, he is a paranoid. And he is, as I think we would in a modern sense diagnose him, uh, he is a paranoid, but he also has just tremendous amounts of PTSD because he's been serving in the Navy for about a decade. I would also say probably narcissistic personality disorder and PTSD, which is not a great combo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially in a commanding officer during World War II. And he immediately starts going like, we're going to do everything by the book and begins screaming at everyone doing anything wrong that he can find, which results in him fucking up so hard that the ship runs over its own tow line and ruins a bunch of equipment and is the last in this training exercise to get back to base to the point where he just lies about what's going on. Yeah, he says that it was faulty equipment and that it couldn't possibly be his fault. Yeah. That the Navy gave him bad equipment. Then all of Act Two is just watching Quig do increasingly weird shit while our two actual other leads are reacting to that, and the pretty boy is still here. Um, <laughs> our two actual leads reacting to that are the exo of the ship, who is kind of trying to find ways to work with Queeg and excuse Queeg's behavior and figure out, like, what's going on here. And a lieutenant named Thomas Kiefer, who is the Fred McMurray role we're talking about, who just immediately fucking can't deal with Queeg. Queeg is immediately on his ass. He immediately hates this guy because Queeg isn't doing his job well. And he is immediately needling the XO about, this guy is unstable. This guy is a paranoid. We got to get rid of this guy. And Queeg does himself no favors by clearly being a paranoid, lashing out at everyone on the ship at every opportunity, turning tail during an invasion of a Pacific island, just generally doing a real bad job and responding not particularly well to threats to his authority. It all culminates with him doing a shipwide search for a secret key he has decided somebody has to the mess locker because some frozen strawberries went missing. And if that sounds like it's not interesting, Humphrey Bogart makes it the most compelling descent into madness I've ever seen in my life. It rules. I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's very, very good. I mean, yeah, it's it. Yes. The stakes are very high. The stakes are very high. 
This movie is either a proto version or in conversation with so many movies in a way that I want to talk about. And that scene is so in conversation with The Thing. Which I haven't seen. I mean, watch it. It's great. But it's just such a great little bottle of paranoia is this weird scene where he comes out with this bucket of sand that's a a gallon of sand, the same amount of strawberries we had, and asks one of the guys from the mess to scoop out a spoon of the sand for every serving anyone says they have. And then goes, you see, there's like a quarter of the the gallon left. Somebody somewhere has stolen our strawberries and we got to get track of it. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, because you're just watching. Like the thought I had is just, please start lying. Why won't anyone start lying about how many servings they had? What's What's going on? The thing for me that I kept waiting for someone to say is, you do realize that the strawberries would have space in between them in a way that the sand wouldn't. But apparently that didn't end up being the thing. Right. Also, who's going to say that to the captain of the ship who's already not doing great? Eventually, they're going to go over to a big aircraft carrier and talk about how weird Queeg's behavior has been. But Kiefer convinces them to back off because he hasn't technically done anything that would get him thrown out of the service. He's just done a lot of super weird shit that you could, I guess, technically excuse. But after that, they get caught in a huge typhoon and Queek basically goes catatonic for about a minute and a half. And when he comes out of it, immediately begins giving orders that are totally wrong. (laughs) And the XO decides that he has to take over command of the ship because otherwise they are going to capsize and everybody's going to die. Yes. This is technically... I mean, not even really technically, this is a mutiny. They are taking the the command of the ship over the commanding officer. Handsome boy agrees with it. So he is also there during the court battle that is the third act of this movie. But who fucking cares? Because the actual person on trial that we follow is the XO. And this is where Jose Ferrer shows up as the only military lawyer willing to take the EXO's case. And just instantly, you're like, oh, thank God somebody else is giving another great performance. Like, somebody's giving a performance <laughs> that's up to Humphrey Bogart's level. Great. Especially because we don't get a lot of Humphrey Bogart in the third act. I mean, we get a phenomenal scene with him, but he's not in it as often. Yeah, for sure. And this movie definitely has a when Humphrey Bogart isn't on screen, people should be asking where's Humphrey Bogart problem. Like, especially in act two, just it's so boring unless you're watching Humphrey Bogart. But the court case essentially becomes a bunch of people testifying that, hey, are you sure you didn't just hate your captain? Like, you guys clearly didn't get along. All the reports are you guys did not get along. And Kiefer, essentially to save his own skin because he doesn't want to be blamed for this mutiny and have that on his record, goes, I have no idea why the Exo took over the ship. That was super weird to me. He's my friend and I hope this turns out okay for him. 
But after really egging everybody on that Quig is unstable. And that they needed to invoke this, I don't know what the actual code is for the Navy, but it's basically like Article 25 for the Navy, where you can say like, okay, well, we're taking over command of the ship because our commanding officer is not in control of themselves or is a danger to himself and others, essentially. And a little bit, the court case is weird because it involves everybody from the ship going like, I don't know if I ever saw Queek do anything that weird. And you're like, you're definitely, you did, my man. Uh, but Kiefer is the one who just straight up is lying on the stand for the sake of his own career and just because he's kind of a coward. And that almost sinks the case. But then Jose Ferrer cross-examines Humphrey Bogart super duper hard. And Humphrey Bogart goes into a paranoid rant that is absolutely amazing, followed by reaction shots of everybody in the courtroom going, uh, oh, oh, which also rules. What I love is there's no verdict. You just smash cut to the party where the EXO and all of the officers are celebrating him being acquitted. <laughs> and Jose Ferrer, the lawyer, wanders in and gives a speech that is a little bit confused because, again, the moral of this movie is a little bit weirdly intertwined with the rah-rah Navy shit. He essentially says that Queek couldn't help himself. Like, he had actual mental problems. You guys could have supported him. It was necessary to do a mutiny on the bridge of that ship that night. It wasn't necessary to do all the shit that led up to there needing to be a mutiny. And then turns to Kiefer and goes, and hey, you know who's mainly responsible for that? It's this piece of shit. <laughs> and throws a drink in his face and gives the best kiss off line ever, as you said via text, uh, which I'm going to let you deliver if you would like to. I'm going to be outside if you want to do anything about this. And I'm drunker than you are, so it'll be a fair fight. <laughs> Which is... Mike, drop and leave. <laughs> I, I should also note that this character's acting piece of flair is, for reasons that are never really explained, his right arm is just bandaged up at all times. So he's basically going, I'm drunk and I have one good arm, so it probably will be about even if you decide to come out and fight me. It is the literal, with one arm tied behind my back. <laughs> And Kiefer, because he's a coward, does just sort of stand there as everybody else walks out away from him. And then there's another scene with the pretty boy, and I don't know why, because that's the perfect end to this movie. Because he's ostensibly our lead for whatever. Like, the, his, whole, yeah. his whole personal shit is so zero stakes. Yeah. He's little Lord Fauntleroy. His mom is so proud of him because he went to Navy school. And then... He's like, well, I don't know if I can marry the nightclub singer. And then she's like, you know what? Fuck you. And he's like, I'm going to still write you letters because I really like you. And then comes back. They go to Yellowstone on a vacation, which like, fine, whatever. <laughs> yeah. At which point he asks her to marry him. And she says, I can't because your mom won't like me. And then that like that just evaporates and is fine because she agrees to it and the mom is like well i'm so glad to meet your friend there's actually no conflict no there's this very clear triangle of the command staff between Queeg, kiefer and the exo 
the, you can read very cleanly what's happening there. And then every time Pretty Boy's here, Pretty Boy just confuses me. So he kind of likes Queeg, but he mostly just likes Queeg because he didn't like the first captain. And I think we're supposed to like the first captain. Like, it, Humphrey Bogart is coming in with this. He's just like rolling these two steel balls against each other as a nervous tick and just is doing every like, oh, this is going to go bad signifier you can do. And the pretty boy just makes you second guess this very clear performance by Humphrey Bogart. He makes the movie not just unnecessarily longer, but actively worse and more confusing versus just have it be those three guys because he never fucking does anything. The point of his character is he never fucking does anything. And then in the climactic moments of the film, he still never fucking does anything. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and th- that guy kind of sucks. I think that... Fred McMurray is a huge victim of that guy being in this movie because it makes that character's heel turn, like Kiefer's heel turn, kind of more confusing and unclear. There's a way in which that could be like the end of the usual suspects, right? Where Jose Ferrer comes in and goes like, hey, you know who the actual person who should have been on trial is? It's you, Kiefer. And then like you think back and go like, fuck, you're right, he was kind of the instigator of fucking everything. And instead, you're like, yeah, why in the third act did he just start being a jerk? Because, like, there isn't a stable read on who thinks what about Queeg for a really long time because of the extra math of Pretty Boy. Mm -hmm. It just makes the movie more confused than it needs to be. Again, it's not terrible because Humphrey Bogart's here and Fred McMurray's trying his best and eventually Jose Ferrer's here, but it does make the movie, I think, a little bit more of a strain to get through and a little bit more confusing than it needs to be that they've just grafted this romance with an absolutely nothing blank leading man onto it. If it were a romance with anyone else in the movie who fucking matters, Mm -hmm. it might make sense, but he's not important in the context of the bigger picture. I've seen this kind of character work before, where you have the guy who's the new guy, so we get his perspective and he's kind of the audience surrogate because he is being put in the middle of the situation that he also, like the audience, doesn't know as much about. But they don't even use him in that way. (laughs) No. And honestly, Fred McMurray would be great for that. Like, Kiefer would be this great character where you're like, oh, this is a point of view character because you do kind of agree with him. He's the first person to go like, hey, Queeg's nuts. And Queeg is nuts. Oh, yeah. And it's still sort of what happens is that that makes that turn where you're like, hey, actually, you were a huge asshole. No, he was the only person who was, oh, fuck, he was a huge asshole. God, why is he such a huge asshole? He could have been a perfectly serviceable point of view character if you wanted to do that. He would have been more interesting, you're right, to have a love interest back on the mainland. Queeg mentions he has a wife and a kid. And, like, having a scene where you actually see that would be fascinating. Just watching anybody but this guy is a better choice every single time that guy's on screen. Yeah, there's a brief moment after Queeg fucks up for the first time where you see him kind of try and triangulate and get Pretty Boy on his side. Yeah. And I kind of thought, oh, now there's a reason for this guy to be here because this movie is actually going to be about Queeg 
kind of trying through a cult of personality to hold on to power, even though he's clearly not stable enough to be wielding it properly. But then that isn't actually what Act 2 ends up being. Basically, everybody on the ship is immediately like, I fucking hate this guy. People just have varying ideas about what to do about that. Mm -hmm. So, again, Pretty Boy just doesn't need to be here. He does not. I do want to talk about the totally fucking weird music in this movie. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Because it is so disconcerting that it's noticeable, which most of the time when we watch these, honestly... I might notice the music while I'm watching the film, but it has no real bearing on my enjoyment. Occasionally, there will be, like, really good music where I end up talking about it on the podcast briefly. But there's a scene where, for instance, Quig decides that they have to do this exercise where it's like they're actually in a battle And everybody has to have on their life jacket and their helmet and their full battle dress or he's going to dock them three days of leave. And this is one of the moments where we really see that his controlling temperament is further than just he's, you know, the captain of a ship in the Navy because he's running around the ship trying to bust people after he's announced, if you don't have this stuff, then you get three days leave docked. And everybody's like scrambling to put on helmets and life jackets and everything else. And he just wants to find someone. And the music is this like really upbeat Sousa type march. Every man not wearing a helmet or life jacket will be ducked three days liberty. Which is very fucking weird. Yeah. This movie also multiple times, and like, this is just a general note to the U.S. Navy. You guys have got to get a couple more recognizable tunes besides Anchors Away. (laughs) Because like, it is literally violently inappropriate in this film when it comes up. It is very weird, the juxtaposition between the like, extremely patriotic, the Navy is here, stuff, and this psychological boiler pot where nobody wants to wake up in the morning because they're all just a bundle of nerves. It is so distracting. You're right. It is so off kilter from the tone this movie is setting up everywhere else. This movie isn't quite in control of itself. Humphrey Bogart's in control of himself, and whenever he's on screen, there's an anchor here. But when he's not, you do end up with a lot of scenes where you're like, so I'm supposed to think they're being jerks right now, or are just goofing around with the boys, or the Navy is great, or bad, or both? It's not even just, like, full songs. It's stings at the end of scenes. Was that... Was that goofing around? I thought that that was, like, kind of a serious moment. Why do we have this, like, wop, 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 wop at the end of the scene? Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking weird. Which, this, coupled with Pretty Boy's romance subplot, makes me question if the director knows what this film is at all. <laughs> You know, I don't think it's straight Hayes Code. I think it's just the sort of mores of the time 
where like apparently the novel is much more clear that Quig has lost it. Quig is crazy and apparently it focuses way more on the pretty boy character and really does get into his head way more in the way of that scene where Humphrey Bogart is like trying to recruit him. Mm. It is way more about him going like, hey, a good commanding officer is not necessarily a commanding officer who's nice to me personally. And somebody has to make the call to get this guy to step down. And instead, when the XO does the mutiny in this movie and the guy steering the ship is like, who do I listen to? Asks the pretty boy. You're like, the fuck are you asking him for? Like, <laughs> like who gives a shit what he thinks? <laughs> but that's sort of supposed to be his big decisive moment is who does he agree with? But it kind of doesn't matter because it then becomes the XO's movie immediately afterward. Right. I think this is a movie hamstrung by a perceived need that may have been an actual need to do a bunch of rah-rah Navy shit rather than actually kind of indict the masculinity of the command chain culture that it was trying to indict. Because there is a lot of stuff to performed masculinity and perceived wounded masculinity to Queek's performance that's like not even, like they directly state that. This is not me doing some sort of modern SJW language thing. Mm -hmm. The movie goes pretty directly like, Hey, if something hurts this guy's ego, he will lash out. That's actually a terrible thing in a commanding officer. And kind of says, hey, he showed these moments of vulnerability to you, and your reaction was to be shitty about it. Yes. To go like, don't need to listen to that guy. He's a pansy. That very specifically, that was the moment they could have turned things around. Yeah. I think that that is something this movie wants to say, but it ends up getting lost in the rah-rah patriotic music. It ends up getting lost in, we have to see the pretty boy who's going to be a good Navy officer someday. And it gets lost in just not being able to directly state, hey, the Navy really fucked up mm -hmm. at any point in this movie. There's always got to be a way out where it's not really the Navy's fault. Yeah, I do want to say that the uh, I don't I don't I don't know if it is the writing of this film or if it really is just well no it is because that part where Jose Ferrer's lawyer character is like I got you off of this charge but you were shitty because you could have backed this guy up when he asked for help but Humphrey Bogart plays this in such a way where yes absolutely he does seem like someone who has severe PTSD and probably also narcissistic personality disorder but you still have sympathy for him, even while you're like, I absolutely would not want him to run a ship. And it sucks that these people are being subjected to his abuse. But you're like, this is a man who is unwell, who needs help. And it is not forthcoming because of the specific situation that he is in. Yeah. And Fred McMurray's character is in a way kind of exploiting a knowledge not like a deep knowledge, but a knowledge of psychology in order to get rid of this guy that he doesn't like. That doesn't feel as clear that Fred McMurray is kind of this dick until the end where he is a total chicken shit at the trial. But in retrospect, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, instead of helping this guy when he asked for help, which totally up in the air as to whether or not that would have changed anything. But that essentially he was like, oh, yeah, he's crazy and bad. And what we're going to do is we're going to exploit that to get rid of him instead of 
I don't know, like go to the Admiral and say, hey, I think this guy needs help. <laughs> yeah, the scene where they almost go and tell an Admiral and Kiefer waves it off is such a weird scene and so strange and unnecessary and clearly just there so that they could have this out of, well, clearly if they told the Admiral, like the Navy would fix it. They kind of made mistakes too. It isn't just the Navy assigned them an insane commanding officer. Because in real life, the Navy didn't want to cooperate with this movie and Mm. did kind of extort some changes to the script and the story out of Columbia to be involved in the film. And that's what you want to change? Not not that the Navy did not do anything to support a man with very clear PTSD. You want to change that? These people should have gone to the Admiral. Like... Right. I think you're totally right. It's actually really remarkable because when Bogart comes on screen, like from the first scene where he kind of calls an officer meeting and pulls out the little metal balls, you're like, oh, he's going real big with this. We're not having it ramp up. We're starting from scene one. This guy is unstable. But he is able to find a sympathetic angle on that. He does keep you in a way where this guy is totally unqualified for this and unprepared for it and shouldn't be doing it. But you do still feel for him and think like, God, this is such a terrible situation for him to be in too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Nobody is in a good place here. It's not a Captain Bly situation. And Fred McMurray actually does make that comparison in the film. But this is not mutiny on the bounty this is not a guy who is just a like hideous sadist who wants to hurt people he is a hurt person yeah yeah so i don't know how to rate this movie because it is so weird it it really is and like uh, another thing that's kind of destabilizing about pretty boy ordinarily we do what percentage of running time but i don't know if i really have a sense of sort of what percentage of running time of this movie is good Part of that is that things are, in retrospect, good because of when Act 3 starts clarifying some stuff about Kiefer and the XO. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that I'm not really sure how long Act 2 is or Act 3 is. They feel much shorter, in a way, than that opening stretch of just absolutely unnecessary bullshit about the pretty boy. But I don't know if they actually are or if it's just like, oh, God, more of this guy. When will he get off screen? (laughs) Yeah, I think they're pretty short. I think. Except, well, the totally stakesless vacation that does nothing to forward any of the plot or develop his character or anything. Like, there's no reason for it at all. does feel like it's kind of long. Yeah, I don't really know what percentage of it is either. And it's woven so much throughout where there will be like these little five minute side scenes about pretty boy and his girlfriend or pretty boy and his mom. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say what percentage. I mean, the other thing too is because of that threading, I don't think you can do just the percentages because it does mean that the whole script is a mess. Not like, there's this one section where it kind of drags, you know, like, oh, it drags in the middle or whatever. Every now and then we have to just completely disrupt the momentum of this film for this fucking thing. (laughs) Yeah. 
So let's narrow it down a little. Like a five? I think it's got to be above a five. I do too, because the parts that are good are great. Yes. This is Treasure of the Sierra Madre may still edge it out, but this is almost my favorite Humphrey Bogart performance. Yeah, I actually might like this better. It's great. It is just stellar one for the ages performance. I love it. It's super nuanced. It's a complicated character. He's playing someone who is wholly unlikable that you still have sympathy for. Like, yeah. Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he's kind of a villain from the beginning. Like, you know where this is headed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is hard acting. This is not just like, I'm Humphrey Bogart and I'm cool. He has to be uncool, which I didn't know was possible. (laughs) Yeah. When he comes to everybody and goes like, hey, I have a wife and kids and it's lonely being a captain. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I did a good, I can't say I did a bad, but I, maybe we can be more of a family and leaves. He looks so pathetic. Yeah. And it's fucking Humphrey Bogart. And he looks so pathetic and defeated. Yeah. And so small. (laughs) Yeah. He's doing some incredible work here. Is it my favorite Humphrey Bogart character? No. No, But I think it is the best Humphrey Bogart performance that I've seen. And I've never seen Humphrey Bogart do a bad job of acting. (laughs) So it can't be a five. It can't be a ten. Because, I mean, it's just, it can't. No, because it's a mess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is it the tilt in there of just like 7.5? Yeah, I think I think 7.5. 7. I'm going to go 7. Okay. Because the music thing is so fucking distracting sometimes. And like undermines some of the more incredible performances in here, which is very frustrating. And Jose Ferrer, like, I hated him in the Toulouse-Lautrec movie. I did not realize it was him. It literally lowers my opinion of Jose Ferrer, who... Yo, character actor corner, fucking Jose Ferrer is here. Jose Ferrer rules. Miguel Ferrer, his son, who you may know from looking exactly like Jose Ferrer, also (laughs) rules. But yeah, he's so bad in that. And like, I think it's the movie's fault more than his performance's fault. But there's just no Jose Ferrer-ness to it Mm -hmm. in Moulin Rouge. It's like that movie where there was uh, James Stewart was credited and it was so shitty that I was like, there's another guy named James Stewart. That's got to be distracting to Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> like, because <laughs> he's just not doing any of the shit that I think of him as being good at. Yeah. In uh, Moulin Rouge. And he's great here. Yeah, he's really very good. I Yeah, so I, seven. I'm going to say seven, but I'm also going to say watch this movie. <laughs> I absolutely think, hey, in your head, mentally replace the title card about how the Navy is great and would never do a mutiny with a title card from us saying, forget about the pretty boy. You're here for Humphrey Bogart. And if you know that going in, like, I don't think I'm going to watch this movie again like tonight, but I think I would enjoy this movie a lot more on a second watch. Having a stake in the ground of this is Humphrey Bogart's movie, and it's kind of a shame he's not on screen more. But that's why you're here. And it's going to take half an hour. So don't get confused. <laughs> it's going to take a minute. Don't get confused when he's not on screen and think maybe the movie is about somebody else. It's not. It's about Humphrey Bogart. The movie just doesn't always know that. <laughs> I actually got confused when, you know, 20, 25 minutes into the movie. I'm like, where the fuck is Humphrey Bogart? I yep. thought, wasn't this a Humphrey Bogart movie? Mm-hmm. And then, yes, it is, in fact, a Humphrey Bogart movie. And, and then it takes about 20 seconds once he's on screen to go, oh, this is a Humphrey Bogart movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it takes forever for him to show up. 
know that going in, and I think you'll have a good time with this movie, because his performance really is just stellar. Yeah, so next week, we are watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is a musical set in Oregon in 1850. Yep. Yep. I am... This is this is possibly like my kryptonite. So I am not looking forward to this at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is a thing where I'm it's like I know the title and then I always think I know more about it than I do and then all of the details are like, "Oh right, I purposefully don't know anything about it besides the title." <laughs> Because like every yeah, I know absolutely nothing about it. So like every every detail I learn beyond the title Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I'm like, this is not my thing. I like musical theater, but like this is this is the kind of musical theater that I do not like. Yeah, maybe it'll be great. Maybe it'll be great. Eh, maybe. maybe. It'll be great. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, tune in next week to find out if I suddenly discover that I really like musical set in the 19th century frontier yeah uh, <laughs> and until then god it's so confusing i can't remember if it's a movie past pretty boy the pretty boy part isn't humphrey bogart's in a movie and not everybody else in this movie is <laughs> yeah this was a humphrey bogart movie yeah. the parts of it that were not were not <laughs> were a mistake yes except for jose ferrer anyway Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Now here's to the real author of the Cane Mutiny. Here's to you, Mr. Kiefer. If you want to do anything about it, I'll be outside. I'm a lot drunker than you are, so it'll be a fair fight. <laughs>